Matthew West, many of you are familiar with him and kind of his songwriting abilities, but he wrote that song uh, after meeting a former University of Colorado student named Andrea. Andrea um, was a student at the University of Colorado, and she decided to spend a semester uh, studying microfinancing in Uganda. And I don't even know what microfinancing is, um, but I wouldn't think Uganda would be the place that you would have to go do that in. But this is what she decided to do. But while she was there, she traveled around a little bit, and she happened to come upon this orphanage there um, in one of the uh, kind of outlying areas And this orphanage, she said, was in extremely bad shape. She said that the children were being badly neglected and even abused. And her heart broke for these young kids that that had no advocate, that had nobody to to fight for them. And so um, she called her parents because she just couldn't stand seeing these little kids uh, being treated this way. And so she called her parents um, near the end of her time being there. And she simply told her parents, she said, I'm not coming home. I can't leave here like this. That something has to be done, and it's got to be done different than this. And so Andrea's sister uh, flew down, uh, and together they worked to convince the Ugandan government that something had to change about this orphanage. And so the first course of action that the government came up with was, fine, we'll just close the orphanage down. If it's that abusive, if there's that much neglect going on, we'll just close the thing down. The problem is that left 40 kids with absolutely nowhere to go. So then they came up with plan B. We'll just give it to you. And so the government turned over this orphanage and these 40 kids to this college student who just left home and to come and live in Uganda. And so her and her sister worked endless hours. They worked with everything they could. And, uh, they alternated coming back to America, back and forth, uh, and doing all kinds of different fundraisers and, and sharing their passion for these orphanages that were there. And so today, this orphanage is not only thriving, but there's home to over 100 kids now. They run four different schools. They have a medical center on campus for the community. And they have a skills development center for adults that want to come and learn how to do a new trade or learn how to do a new skill so they can lift themselves out of poverty. And so when someone asked her what made her fight for these kids, Andrea simply said, I just kept thinking, if I don't do something, who will? And this morning we're going to finish our series of the Old Testament heroes by talking about another young lady who finds herself facing that same question. Her situation is very different. We're going to be talking about Queen Esther today, and many of you may be familiar with that story, uh, but we're going to be in Esther chapter 4. Her situation is very different than Andrea's, that she's not worried about orphans, but she comes to this point where she's faced with the harsh realities that life is not like it, her life is not like everybody else's life, and everybody else's life is not like hers. And so she's faced with this question of, Am I going to do something about this or am I not? And so I want to jump into this story. But before we do, I want to kind of give you a background to the story of Esther. Some of you may be familiar with it and some of you may not be. Um, so we're going to be in Esther chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles in there. But uh, let me give you this background. Esther is a Jew, but she's living in the land of the Persians because they've been taken over. and They've been kind of exiled uh, to this area. And some of them have been allowed to go back and some of them have not. And so Esther is living in this land, or she is a foreigner, um, and so she's a foreigner, she's living in this foreign land, and her parents have both died, and so she's being raised um, and brought up by her cousin named Mordecai. Mordecai has kind of become uh, an adoptive father of hers, okay? And so during all of this, the king of Persia um, has summoned his wife to come into the inner courtyard. He wants to show off her beauty is basically what he wants to do, show everybody else in the kingdom how beautiful she is, and the queen refuses to come. 
Well, he's the king, and he doesn't like being insulted like this. And so um, they come up with this course of action. He makes this law that she is never allowed to enter into his presence again. In fact, she's getting the, we're going to get rid of her completely. They don't kill her, but they just kind of send her off somewhere. And we're going to replace her with a new queen. And so the, the king of Persia starts this search. He, say, he wants all the young ladies to come from the entire kingdom to his palace so that he can kind of handpick which one he wants to be the new queen. And so this is what he does. And so Esther is of this age where she has to go because this is what the king says. And so she is amongst hundreds, if not thousands, of other girls or ladies that the king is going to choose from. And through this kind of series of elimination, God puts her exactly where she needs to be. And she is the one that's chosen to be the new king. But she's kind of oblivious to some of the things that are going on in the kingdom. Because while she is the queen of the kingdom, there's another man named Haman who is a very wicked man. And Haman has, has kind of been brought up. He's, he's a high-ranking official. And he got the king to make a declaration that everybody should bow down to him. Well, for her cousin, adoptive father, uh, Mordecai, this is a problem because he refuses to. He says, if I'm going to bow to anybody, it's going to be to God. That's pretty much his story. And so he refuses to bow to Haman, and he finds out that that one decision to, to not bow to Haman is not only going to cost him his life, but he finds out that it's going to cost the life of every Jew living in that territory because the, Haman gets so mad, he goes to the, the king and he says, listen, I will pay a huge amount of money if you'll set a certain date and allow me to slaughter all the Jews on this certain date. And so that's where we pick up the story in chapter 4 is, is Mordecai has just found out about this decision. He's just found out that the king agreed to this situation. He's misused this decree and, and we're going to pick up this story in Esther chapter 4, we're going to, it's kind of a lengthy passage, but to get it, we're going to read the whole uh, part of chapter 4. It's only 17 verses. Um, so, if you will just follow along with me, um, we can start reading in chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now Mordecai learned all that had, happened, that had occurred, and he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went to the middle of the city, and he cried loudly and bitterly. And he, went, he only went as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering in the king's gate. And he went, there was great mourning among the Jewish people, and a great providence, or in, in every providence, where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in ashes, in, or sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuch came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes to Mordecai to wear so that he could take off the sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuch assigned to her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. When Hathak went out to Malachi, or excuse me, Mordecai in the city square in the front of the king's gate, Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the royal treasurer for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering the destruction, so that Hackett might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hackett came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hackett and, and commanded him to, to tell Mordecai, all the, king, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that the one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty. 
Only if the king extends the golden scepter will the person live. And I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther responded to, was, Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't, you, or don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who have been found in Susan. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. Nine, my female servants, will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything that Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for uh, this beautiful story that we have before us this morning. God, I thank you for the beautiful story of Andrea and the passion that you gave her got to abandon everything that she had been doing, every plan that she had made to follow a passion, to do something and change the lives of, of not just so many children, but for a whole area and really for a whole country. And God, this morning, my honest prayer is that this is not just a story of Queen Esther that we hear of thousands and thousands of years ago. God, I pray that this, this story is a call to action for us. God, I pray this story is, is what we need to spur us in the right direction, God, to, to wherever you are calling us to, to whatever position you have, have put us in, God, that we will realize this is the moment that you have put us in that position. This is why we were here. This is why we are in this situation. And so, God, I'm praying this morning, God, that you speak to our hearts so clearly that when we walk out these doors... We are so filled with a passion for you and so filled with a passion for what you've called us to do, God, that we can't be silent any longer. And so, God, I pray, God, that this be a call to action for everyone that's sitting in this room, everyone that's watching online. God, anyone who may watch this or hear this sermon in this text later, God, I pray that they are called to action, that we can't sit still any longer, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak. And I pray that we listen. God, with our ears and with our heart wide open to you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1766, the French philosopher uh, Jean Rousseau published a 12-volume work he called his Confessions. And at one point in the book, he writes about this story. Um, about a, he calls her just simply the Great Princess. And so many historians have agreed that the story he's telling is true. He's telling a true story about a great princess. Um, and he describes her um, as living this massive life of luxury. And so there's questions, not of he's writing a true story, but who he's actually talking about. And some will say that he's writing about uh, Maria Theresia, uh, which is a Spanish princess who about 100 years before this married the French king. Um, and there's others that would suggest he wrote about Maria Antoinette, who is an Austrian princess 
who married the French prince about the same time in history. And so there's debate over who he was writing about. There's not a question whether it was a true story or not, but there's a kind of a, this debate of who is he talking about. Because either one of these ladies would have fit his description of this great princess. Because the great princess lives this life of luxury. This great princess lives in the world of abundance. That, that she spends today's money, she would spend millions if not billions of dollars either building new palaces or redoing the palaces that are already built because they're just not sufficient enough. All right? And, and so she would spend uh, thousands of dollars having these massive uh, state dinners and, and inviting all these massive guests and these huge feasts. And she would do this all the time. And, and you and I know that nothing the government does is free. It has to be paid for some, somebody's got to pay that bill. And for them, somebody was paying that bill. It's the same people who pay the bill in America. It's you and me, the common people, all right? Not the kings. They don't have to pay taxes. They just get to enjoy the taxes, all right? And so somebody's having to pay this bill. And so this great princess is throwing these lavish banquets, these huge feasts with, with just abundance of food, that so much food is being thrown away. She's throwing these huge, huge feasts even when there's a famine going on in the country that she's in. And so the people are, are starving Outside of her kingdom, outside of her king, her, her, her palace, the people are starving. And so at one point in the story, someone comes up to this great princess and says, Listen, the peasants, they don't have enough food to keep them alive. And so the great princess responds by a very famous saying. And she says, If they don't have enough bread, then let them eat cake. And obviously the problem is that if they don't have enough money to buy bread and there's no bread, then they won't have money to buy an even more expensive cake. And so Rousseau uses this quote to show this great princess is completely oblivious to what's going on outside the palace walls. Meaning she has no idea what life is like for the common people that she is ruling over. Either that or she knows what it's like and she just doesn't care. One author says that she has a frivolous disregard for the starving peasants that are living just beyond the walls of her palace. As we look at the story of Esther, we find her somewhat in a similar situation. She is living this very comfortable life within the confines of the walls of the palace. And everything is going fine for her. She's got guards that guard her and protect her. She's got servants that wait on her hand and foot. Everything she's needed is given to her. If she ever even thought about being hungry, somebody was there to give her ice cream. If she ever thought about she needed a snack, somebody already had it prepared for her. Everything that she wanted or needed, it was there. And so life for her is so easy, it's so comfortable. And so she's kind of lured into this idea that just because uh, she's comfortable means that everybody else is comfortable as well. And sure, they're not living in the palace and they may not have servants, but they're all comfortable just like I am. And so she's completely oblivious to the plight of the people that are just beyond the walls of her palace until one day she hears about the action of her cousin who's adopted her Named Mordecai. And this is where Esther starts her transformation from the great princess to the great queen. That, that we study and we celebrate. Because for the great princess, she just didn't care about what was going on in the outside of the wall. But Esther does. Esther is willing to investigate this. She's willing to look beyond the walls and kind of get the full story of what's going on. Because in, in, she has no idea of the decree that's been issued. In verse 1 it tells us that Mordecai... 
heard about the decree, and get this, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went to the middle city, and he cries loudly and bitterly. And, and here's a man who has just found out this actions, and basically it is his actions that are going to cause the destruction of his entire nation, of all his friends and his family, that his refusal to bow down is not just going to end his life, it's going to end the life of all his friends and all his family, and his whole nation is going to be wiped out because he refused to bow down. And so he tears his clothes. He goes into this deep state of mourning. And all the things that he lists, that he tears his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, all these are public displays of grief. And these were common in those days. This is what you would expect to happen. But these are extreme expressions of it. This is what you would expect if someone in your family died suddenly and unexpectedly. Okay? You would expect kind of this reaction. If something tragic happened to a nation, you would expect this kind of response. And so we find out that he goes to the middle of the city and he's crying out. In fact, in verse 3, it says that all the Jews are kind of doing the same thing. Not all of them are putting on sackcloth and ashes. Some of them are, but not all of them. But all of them are lamenting. All of them are crying. All of them are weeping through the situation because they are honestly just days away from the end of their life. They are days away from their complete nation being wiped out. And so they go to this state of mourning, and for the princess or the queen Esther sitting in her palace where everything is great and everything is comfortable, she doesn't understand this. She doesn't understand why Mordecai is outside of the gate weeping and crying like this. And so in verse 4, um, some of the servants find out that he's doing this. In verse 4, she knows nothing about this edict or this decree. Uh, she just finds out that her cousin is standing outside the gate, and man, he is, he's just acting crazy. He's, he's acting irrational. There must be something wrong with him. In verse 4, it says that she's overcome with fear. Different translation says that she's deeply distressed. And she's really beside herself because think about it. She, this is an embarrassment to her. She's the queen and here's her family members out acting a fool in the middle of the street right at the king's gate. There's something wrong here. Maybe he's just crazy. Maybe he's just lost his mind. Maybe it's time that Mordecai just gets locked away somewhere because this is irrational. There's no reason for this kind of response. There's no reason for him to be acting this way. And so what does she do in verse 4? She sends clothes to Mordecai to wear so that he could take off the sackcloth. Right? Obviously something's going on, but she doesn't know what. So let me just send him a set of clothes so that there's not such an embarrassment going on. And he can put these clothes on and he can go about life like normal. But when he gets the clothes... In verse 4, it says he doesn't accept them. He doesn't take the clothes. Why, to take the clothes would mean that he'd have to take off the sackcloth and put those clothes. He would have to give up this time of mourning, this time of grief that he's in. And so he's not willing to do this. So in verse 4, he doesn't accept the clothes. And so the messengers take this message back to Queen Esther, who's living this life of luxury. And she's like, wait, something's not adding up here. I don't understand why he's acting this way. I don't get, there's some part of this picture that I'm missing. There's some part, there's one little button somewhere that I just can't figure out. And so verse 5 and verse 6, she sends the king's servant down to, to meet Mordecai. And, and she's really hoping to get a better picture. She's hoping to get a, a, the full story of what's going on with Mordecai. Because it doesn't make sense the way he's acting. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't fit with what's going on inside the palace. And so Mordecai in verse seven, uh, he, in verse 6 and 7, he lays it all out for this guy. 
Right? In verse 7, he tells this servant everything that's happened. He tells him about the edict. In fact, in verse 7, it says he tells the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. And then in verse 8, he, he makes sure there's no question about that. He gives the servant a copy of the edict. Listen, if there's any question, here it is in writing. Take this and show it to Queen Esther. Okay? Now understand a little bit, when he gives this servant a piece of paper that shows the actual edict... That's a big deal. For you and me, we just copy it on a post-it note and send it away. Like, they don't have that, okay? Anytime you had paper, it was a big deal. Or something to write on, it was a big deal. So for him to give up his copy means if this servant doesn't take it to Esther, there's no extra copies of this thing. This is, he's putting all the trust in this servant to take this message to Esther because this is all the hope he's got left. There is no hope besides Esther doing what he says or what he needs her to do. And so in verse 8, he goes on to say, Listen, uh, I need you to take this to her and tell her everything. When Esther gets this information, things start to make a little more sense to her. She, she begins to understand why Mordecai is acting the way he is. She begins to understand why he's weird and what he's weird and why he's responded to this situation. It is, see, the first part of it, she didn't have this full picture. She didn't fully understand why he was behaving this way. At least she was willing to look beyond the walls and say, there's something going on out there. I don't have the full understanding of it, but I want to figure this out. And so she goes and she investigates, and what she finds out is that just outside of her comfortable living zone, just outside the walls of her palace, are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who are facing imminent danger, that within days they're going to be wiped out, they're going to be completely killed, that within days her her whole family and everybody she grew up with is going to be completely destroyed. And now that she knows the full story, she starts to understand the behavior of her cousin. She is starting to make sense to her why he's behaving the way that he's doing. And this is a great point for us because I want to tell you that, that this morning some of us have lived for so long within the confines of these walls that we've honestly become oblivious to what life is like outside of them. And I want you to understand, I'm talking about these walls that you're currently sitting in right now, the physical walls of this building, but I'm also talking about the confines of your comfort zone that you have kind of built this, this social bubble around yourself. And we have honestly lived so long in these comfort zones, in these social bubbles, within the confines of this wall, that some of us have become completely oblivious to the fact that there's a world outside of these walls that is desperately seeking an answer somewhere. That we are desperate... And there are people just outside of these walls and outside of your bubble and outside of your, your comfort zone that you may, you may kind of encounter. But the real question is, are you going to be able to do anything about it? Or are you just going to sit there and write them off because they're just acting crazy? They're just, it just doesn't make sense to you why they're acting this way. And so some of us, we are well aware that there are folks outside of these walls and folks outside of these walls that I built myself. We are well aware there are people out there that are hurting. We are well aware there's people out there that, that there's chaos in their lives. We are well aware of the fact that there are struggles and things out there. The problem is we just don't understand why they react the way that they do. You see, for some of us, we know well about the lady who's living in an abusive relationship. We just don't understand why she doesn't get out of it. We'd like to do something, but it just doesn't make sense to us. For some of us, we know well the drug addict. But we just don't understand why he doesn't just stop and move on with his life. 
For some of us, we know well the mean-spirited and vindictive and ridiculous stuff that people are doing and posting online and, and what's being reported by the media. We know it's there, but we just don't understand why they take it to this extremes. Why this passion is, is displayed and demonstrated this way. We just don't understand that. And so for some of us, it just doesn't make sense. And the reason that we don't get it is because we're on the inside of these walls looking on the outside and we don't have the full story. You see, when we're willing to take the extra step like Esther was and listen to the full story, we may find that there's a very different reason than what we thought. When you sit down with a drug addict and you actually listen to his story, you may find out that he very well wants to walk away. That he regrets every single time that he goes from one high to another high to another high. The problem is he just don't know how to switch off the cold sweats that wake him up every single night that makes him go and do this. You see, when you take time to learn his story, you realize he's not just a junkie that you write off. He really does want to change. When you listen to the stories of people who are passionate about something, and maybe let's even take it to this extreme, when someone who is so passionate about a political position, and it may be the very opposite of where you stand and on a certain situation or any situation, we, we are so quick to write those people off, and we're so quick to say they're just irrational, they just don't make sense. But if all of a sudden we sat down with those people and we said, listen, help me understand where you're coming from, I'm guessing that maybe we would hear their full story. Maybe the reason that someone is so against guns is because someone in their family was killed by a gun. And I know the argument. It wasn't the gun. It was the person. I get that. But you haven't lived in their shoes. You don't get to tell them what they think. For some of us, we need to step back and realize that the reality that we live in is not the reality that everybody else lives in. That what happens in the confines of those walls that are around you right now, in the confines of the walls of your comfort zone, do not fit everybody else's lifestyle. And so it's easy to write them off. It's easy to judge them and say, you're just crazy, you're just out there, and you're just ridiculous, and, and you're just irrational. But if we take time to listen to their full story, then we might understand a little bit more. Now let me be clear. Their full story doesn't make it right. Their full, story, their full story doesn't make you have to change your position or your views on anything. But I want to tell you this. We would be much better served if we would just sit and listen to the story before we write them off as being gone forever. If we would just sit and listen to their story, we can make such a big difference. If we're ever going to get serious about making a difference in this world, then the first thing we've got to do is realize that outside of these walls, there is a world that is desperate. There is a world that is in imminent danger, not just of this life, but for all of eternity. We've got to understand that outside of these walls, there are people that are hurting, there are people that are broken, there are people that are crying out because they are desperate for help. And then we've got to go to them. And we've got to be willing to say, what's going on? What is this story? And we've got to be willing to listen to the whole story that they're going to tell us. And it doesn't mean that we have to change our opinion of them. But if we're ever going to make a difference for them, we've got to know what their story is. I know this will surprise you, but when I grew up, I grew up, and many of you know, in the, the wonderful world of Stokes County. And in the wonderful world of Stokes County, we didn't have K-Love on the radio, all right? It may have existed, but it didn't reach across the county lines, okay? I don't even know if it existed. In Stokes County, there were three types of music that I knew and grew up with. It was country, it was bluegrass, or it was southern gospel. 
That was the options, okay? And honestly, if there were other radio stations, they didn't make it into Stokes County. I don't know why, but they just didn't. That's all that was available to us in Stokes County. But, and so I was growing up in this, and, and I remember this group, of the Southern Gospel group, uh, they're known as the Kingsman Quartet. And some of you may remember them, some of you may not. Some of you have never heard of even Southern Gospel music, and that's okay. God will forgive you for that one day. Um, but... There's this song that they wrote, and, and it has stuck with me ever since I was a kid. In fact, I looked it up the other day, uh, yesterday, and I was listening to it with my kids, and I said, I want you to hear this song, and I turned it on, and this is how you know you're getting old, okay? Because I turned this song on, and one of my daughters, we won't name her, but one of my daughters said, what are you listening to? And I knew right then that I was not as cool as I thought I was. But the song that, that has stuck with me over and over and over in all these years is simply called Excuses. And the, the start of the song goes like this. I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm just going to read the lyrics to you. Um, save your ears that way. But it says, Excuses, excuses, you'll hear them every day. The devil, he'll supply them if from church you stay away. When the people come to know the Lord, the devil always loses. So to keep them folks away from church, he offers them excuses. Now, and then the song goes on to list out all these other excuses and reasons why people don't come to church like it's too hot, it's too cold, the pews are too hard, the pews are too soft, the preacher preaches too long, or maybe he preaches too short. Never, but that's what they say in there. Um, and so they, they give all these excuses, but the reality is that, that there's a lot of truth in that second line. That any time somebody is willing to go to church or do something for God or do something good, they're going to find that the devil is going to give them tons of excuses not to do it. There's always going to be an excuse not to do what God's called you to do. And for Esther, she shows us what many of us know, that, that there's always going to be a reason not to do something. There's, there's always going to be an excuse not to do something that benefits someone else. And, and for her, there's actually two excuses that she gives when Mordecai tells her, listen, I need you to go to the king and plead with him for us. Plead with him for your people. By the way, back up to the, the uh, background of the story. Nobody knows at this point that Esther is a Jew. When she was taken to the palace, Mordecai said, Listen, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. Because they'll automatically throw you out. You won't qualify to be the next queen if they know you're a Jew. So don't tell anybody. And now all of a sudden he's telling her in verse 8, Hey, go to the king and tell him that they, these are my people. And he's begging her to go do this. And so she offers him these two excuses in verse 11. And, and they seem somewhat legitimate reasons why she can't do what he's asked her to do. In verse 11 it says that any or all the royal officials and the people of the royal providence, they know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court who has not been summoned. The death penalty. So the, the king has the ability he can extend the golden scepter and, and let that person live. But I haven't been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. And really, uh, there are two separate excuses here. One of them is, listen, what you're asking me to do is really illegal. All right? No one's allowed to go into the court of the king. No one can just walk up to the king and say, hey, you and I need to have a chat. Right? I know you're on the throne, I know you're busy, but let's just talk for a little bit. You can't do that with the king. And the, the law is that even if it's an official, even if it's me, the queen, I can't just walk in there and demand an audience with the king. It doesn't work that way. Do you know? Everybody knows. Mordecai, you know this. There's one thing that awaits anybody who does that. 
the death penalty. And by the way, do you remember what he did to his first wife when she didn't come and he called her? What do you think he's going to do to me when he doesn't call me and I show up unexpectedly? This is illegal. I can't do this. And then she gives him the second excuse, which is a little more or a little less legit for some of us, but it's the one we find that we use all the time. She says in, ver- in that same verse, verse 11, I haven't been summoned into the king or summoned to the king for the last 30 days. Now, there's a debate whether she means I haven't been allowed into the courtyard, into the inner court where he does all the official business. I haven't been able to go in there for 30 days, or whether it means that she really hasn't seen the king at all for the last 30 days. Right? It could be either way. And so there's no definite way to know whether she's been in the courtyard or she hasn't seen the king at all in 30 days. And so her first excuse is, listen, what you're telling me is this is illegal and I can't really do it because of that. But the second excuse I'm going to give you is, listen, Mordecai, this is, this is really not a good time. If it had been a month ago, I might could have done this. But I haven't even seen him or talked to him or, or been in this official role for the last 30 days. And so we don't know why. We don't know if maybe they had a big fight and so he's given her the silent treatment for 30 days. Like We don't know if, if she's disagreed with him or done something to him. We don't know if he's angry with her or he's just doing business and he's busy and doesn't have time to, to be with her or to, to use her in this official. We don't know. And so Esther is kind of looking at this. She's like, listen, Mordecai, I, I don't know exactly where I stand with the king. I mean, it's obvious that we're not on the same page because he, I haven't been around him for 30 days. So listen, the, the timing of this just doesn't work for me. You know, if it had been 30 days ago, if it had been last month and all this came out, yeah, we were good then, and I could have done something then, but now it's just not a good time. And for us sitting here today, that sounds like such a lame excuse, doesn't it? It's just not a good time for me to go do this right now because it's going to be awkward, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, it's just not, the timing is not right. But if we're truly honest, how many of us use that exact same excuse when God, call, God calls us to do something? I can't tell you the number of people, and, and I'm, I'm not picking on anybody. I, maybe this is you, maybe it's not. There have been lots of folks that I've talked to that want to go on a mission trip. That I've talked to them and I said, hey, we're going to do this mission trip. We're planning this mission trip. Would you be there? Yes, I want to go on that mission trip. I want to go do this. And, and yeah, I've been praying about it. And I really feel God wants me to do this. And He wants me to go here and do this. Perfect. Here's the dates that we're going to do this. Hmm. Or here's how much this is going to cost. Hmm. You know, now's, now's just not really a good time. Like, I, my kids are young and, and I can't really leave them right now. So now's just not a good Maybe when they get a little bit older, they'll be a little more independent and I can leave them and I can go on this mission trip. Okay? And I'd love to do it just then. And then they get a little bit older and I was like, hey, we've got this mission trip coming up. Would you like to go? Yeah, I'd love to go. Here's how much it costs, and here's the dates that we're going. Mm. You know, my kids are older, like they're in high school now, and so we've got car insurance, and we've got car payments, and we're really saving up for college. And so now's just not a good time. Give me a couple more years, and then I'll go. So a couple more years passed, and I go back to that same person. I'm like, hey, listen, several years ago you were interested in this mission trip, and now your kids are grown, they're in college, and they're beyond college, and they moved out. Now is the perfect time for you to go. Mm, except now I'm, I'm, I'm this close to retirement. And I've just got to get in these last couple years. I'm really saving up for retirement. If you can just give me a couple more years, and then I'll be glad to go do it. I'll be glad to go do what God's called me to do. If you just give me a couple more years, I'll be glad to go do it. 
couple more years goes by, and I go up to that person, and I was like, listen, you, you have, you've told me that for years that you were wanting to do this, and now this is your opportunity. You have retired. There's nothing holding you back, right? And see, now's not a good time because I've got this health issue that I didn't have. If you'd have come to me last month, or if you'd have come to me a year ago, I might could have done it then. See, we offer this excuse of now is just not the good time. Now is not the right time to do this. And if we're truly honest with ourselves and with God, it has nothing to do with time. It's just the fact that we don't want to do it in the first place. You see, if, if she wanted to go and do this, if Queen Esther wanted to go in to the king, if she really wanted to do it, do you think it would matter to her that she hasn't talked to the king in 30 days? No, it wouldn't make a difference if she had been with him the night before or she hadn't seen him in a year and a half. If she really wanted to do it, she would go do it. She's just using this as an excuse not to do what God has called her to do. She's using this as an excuse not to do uh, something that is risky because she doesn't want to do it. And so she offers up these excuses, just like so many of us sitting here, whether it's a mission trip or whether it's talking to somebody about Christ or whether it's starting your own small group. All these things, we come up with the same excuse of it's just, just now's not the time. I'm just really busy. I got news for you. Everybody's busy, right? You got the same 24 hours in your day that I got in my day. The question is, is there, are you too busy? And if you are, where's your priorities and what you're busy doing? Quit using the excuse of now's not the right time. Let's use the excuse of, let's be honest, I just don't want to do it. At least be honest with yourself. But Mordecai reminds Esther that, listen, if you don't do this, then you're going to miss out on something great. Because God's going to be faithful regardless of whether you are faithful or not. You see, this poor servant who goes, I feel bad for this guy who has to go back and forth, back and forth between the gate and talking to Mordecai and back to Esther. And if you notice, I lost count in how many times he has to go back and forth between the two. And uh, He's kind of that, that poor little kid that gets stuck in the middle when two parents aren't talking to each other, so they'll send that message back and forth. This poor guy goes back and forth, back and forth. And, and so basically the message is this. Mordecai tells her, In verse 14, he sends this message to the messenger. In verse 14, he says that if you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. You see, Mordecai makes it clear that he is fully confident that God's going to deliver for the Jewish people. He is not trusting that, that, that everything has to rely on Esther at this point, that, that he's fully knowing that God is not done with the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah at this time, that God has made promises to the people of Israel. He's made promises to the nation of Israel that he hasn't fulfilled yet. And you look back over the, 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 the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, he promises to bring them back in the land. Well, he hasn't done that yet. He's also, in those same books, promised that there's a Messiah and there's a Redeemer coming who's going to save His people for all of eternity. And He's going to do this, but He hasn't done that yet. And He's going to do that through the line of David. And so if the line of David is wiped out, there's a problem because that makes God a liar. And Mordecai realizes that God cannot lie. And so if He made this promise to send this Redeemer, He's going to do it. If He made this promise to bring the people back, He's going to do it. And so the real question is not, is God going to do it? The real question is, Esther, are you going to be part of it or are you not? Because God's going to be faithful whether she is or not. And i got to tell you, sitting here, that should give you some confidence. You should be confident and excited of the fact that God doesn't depend on you. That if you mess up and you screw up completely, it doesn't change God's plan. How small would our God be if He was dependent on me or you? 
Maybe you got it together more than I do, but man, how small would God be if when I screwed up, it totally messed up everything that he had going on. You see, it, it doesn't. Because God is so much bigger than me, and his plan is going to happen. God's will is going to be done. The real question is, am I going to get to be part of it, or am I not? Because even though he doesn't need me in any way, shape, or form, he allows me to be part of it. And I am so humbled the fact that he doesn't need me, but he allows me to be part of his plan. And anyone who's sitting here or watching online, God has allowed you to be part of his plan. The question is, are you going to be part of it, or are you not? You see, you get to as long as you want to. And so he's simply saying this, Esther, if you walk away from this opportunity, your whole family is going to be destroyed. You too. But God's going to keep right on going. And somebody else's name is going to be at the top of this book. We would never have the book of Esther if she kept silent. We'd have somebody else's name at the top of this book. The same for you and me. God's will is going to be accomplished. God's will and His plan is going to happen. The promise that He's going to carry His name, the name of Christ, to the ends of the earth, that's going to happen. The only question that we need to figure out is Cornerstone Baptist Church, and as I am an individual, what is my part in making that and helping that happen? Because it's going to happen with or without me, because God is bigger than me in my failures. And so it's going to happen. The question is, am I going to get the blessing of being part of it, or am I not? Because the moment that we choose not to do what God's called us to do, not to take advantage of these opportunities, is the moment that we lose the blessing of being used by God. Because he's going to do it. Whether we do it or not, he's going to. And so Mordecai makes this clear, that he is fully trusting in God because he knows that God has made these promises and he knows that God is going to make this happen. The question is not, is God going to do it? The question is, are we going to get the blessings of being part of it or not? When Mordecai is trying to convince Esther to approach the king, he uses the two lines of reason. The first one is, you're really going to mess out on what God's doing. Your name is going to be wiped away and you're never going to be remembered. And the second argument is simply this. There's a reason you are where you are. Simply put, this is your time, Esther, to do something great. I admit I've never read the book, but I found a great quote from the book called uh, the, book Re the Return of Marlin. And in that book, the author writes this simply. There are no accidents. There is only some purpose that we haven't yet understood and that's exactly what Mordecai is trying to get Esther to understand at the end of verse 14. He tells her at the end, he says, Who knows? Perhaps you've come to the royal position for such a time as this. Esther, you are not queen by accident. And the, the first thing, that we might not have understood what God was doing. We might not have understood why God allowed the king to get rid of his first wife to divorce. We might not have understood why that happened or why God allowed that. Now it's starting to make a little more sense. We might not have understood why out of thousands of other women, you were chosen above all these other women, even though you're a foreigner and nobody knows that. We might not have understood why that all happened, but now it's starting to make sense. Esther, this is why you are here. God has put you in this position for this very moment. And this is the chance you have to act in this moment. And so I'm looking for a room full of people. And I've got some people that are sitting in their living rooms and their, their, uh, their bedrooms or wherever they're watching from right now. And I've got to tell you the exact same thing. Who knows? Maybe God has put you here for this time. The truth is, I know that God has put you in this moment, in this time, because there's a reason for it. i got a bigger one for you. Tomorrow, when you go to work, 
and you're surrounded by the people you love or the people you hate, either way, whichever way your coworkers rub you, God has put you in that place, in that moment, for a reason. And for kids, when you go to school, whenever your next school day is, whether it be Monday or Thursday, and you're sitting in class, and it looks like you've got this schedule completely random, and all of a sudden you're sitting in class, and you're surrounded by classmates, God has put you in that class with that teacher, surrounded by those other classmates for a reason. And maybe, just maybe, God has put you in that place, in that time, to do something far beyond what you ever expected. Maybe He's put you in that place and that time to do something great. To save people from the destruction that is getting ready to happen to them. And maybe God is getting ready to start an amazing movement. But the truth is we can't be so blinded by what's going on around us and so blinded by what's getting ready to happen that we forget God has ordained this place and this moment and this time for us. Because there's a reason that He put us here in this moment, in this place. And tomorrow, there's a reason that He put you in that place, and that time, and those group of people. There's a reason He's done that. There is no accidents with a God who controls everything. Understand that wherever your tomorrow takes you, you're there for a reason. Wherever the next day takes you, you're there for a reason. Wherever God has you in a month, in a year, in six months, in ten years from now, there's a purpose and a reason God has for you there. Look for it. And when it becomes obvious, the very next thing, you got to do it. You see, the last thing that Esther teaches us is that if we're going to do something great for God or for other people, you may have to be willing to go down swinging. Mordecai lays out these two scenarios for Esther. He says, situation number one, scenario number one, is that you stay silent and, and you do nothing. And if you stay silent and do nothing, then you... And your whole family's house, they're going to be wiped out. That's option number one. The second scenario is what he's been asking her to do um, back in verse 14 is, and back in verse 8 actually, go to the king. Go to the king and plead this case for us. Go to the king, and, and I know it's risky. I know it's dangerous for you to do this. I know I'm asking you to do a lot, but you go and you plead with the king to do this. And maybe, just maybe, the king will change his mind. He'll change this law. And maybe, just maybe, you'll save thousands of other people by just going to do this one thing. So understand that you may die doing this, but you may live and you may save a whole nation doing it. So Mordecai lays out these two scenarios. Scenario number one, you stay silent and you die. Scenario number two is you speak up and you save not only yourself, but you save the whole nation. And so finally, throughout all this kind of negotiating back and forth, Esther makes this decision in verse 16. She, she thinks it all over. And she finally comes to this point in verse 16. She says, Go and assemble all the Jews who are found in, the, in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my female servants will, do, will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. And get this. This is the beautiful part of this whole passage. If I perish... I perish. Mordecai, and honestly, in either situation you give me, I'm going to die. In either situation, my life is going to end. The only question is, am I going to die and just roll over and let Haman have his way? Am I going to die for nothing? 
Or am I going to take this risk and I may die in this situation, but I'm going to die with a cause. I'm going to die with a purpose. I'm going to die knowing that I did everything I possibly could. And I'm not going to live with any regrets because I gave everything I had in this moment. And I risked everything. I put it all on the table. And I was willing to die for a cause. And so she simply says, that's where I'm going. And if I die, at least I went down swinging. If I die, at least I gave it my best. And I won't wake up tomorrow and I won't live the next several days regretting that I didn't fight for my people. Regretting the fact that I didn't do the simple thing that God had called me to do. Listen, you have these moments in your life where God has put people in your life and He's put a situation in your life and He's put all this stuff in your life. He's brought you to this moment for this particular time and the real question is, are you going to stay silent or are you going to do what He's called you to do in those moments? And really the question comes down to this. Are you going... To just roll over and be silent and just let whatever happens, happens? Are you willing to lay it all on the table and simply say, I am all in. And even if it costs me my life, I'm going down swinging. I'm going to know that I gave it everything I had. I'm going to die knowing that there was nothing else I could do. I don't know a better way to end my life than fighting for the rights of other people. I don't know a better way to end my life than being a champion for a cause than to end my life sitting by in a palace surrounded by servants. And I could have done something more. You see, when I go to the the bedside of someone who is dying, I get to hear a lot. I get to hear about things they regretted. I get to hear about things they wish they would done. You know what I hear a lot? I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done this differently. Honestly, mostly what I hear is I wish I'd have spent more time with my family and leading my family to Christ. That's what I hear over and over and over. And so I said here, And I look at the face of a man or a lady who knows their time is short. And there's so much regret for what they could have done if only they were willing to do it. So the question is, are you willing to take the risk and say, if I die, I die. But I'd rather die a hero. And I'd rather die for this cause than to live the rest of my life in comfort but full of regret. Knowing that in this moment that God gave me, I just chose to stay silent. Let's pray together.